This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey folks, in anticipation of Dune Part 2 coming to theaters on March 1st, we are rerunning our Adaptation Nation episode where Jeff talked with our former co-workers Jen and Amanda about the first installment of Dune. Hope you enjoy and we can't wait to hear what you think about Dune Part 2 when it's out in a few weeks. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dream them? Yes. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Pain. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Adaptation Nation. Today, with this episode, we're doing Dune, the cultural monolith, the idea of sci-fi, the, the, the bi- one of the biggest properties in all of American culture for sure, makes its third major adaptation attempt this month with uh, Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1960. Oh, I'm my notes. Help me, Jenner, Amanda. 1962? <laughs> 64? 64. <laughs> We're terrible. I have no 65, idea. 65. 65. 65. Novel Dune, which then spiraled into what can you only say is a sprawling mess of, an, of a franchise with 19 books in the Dune series written by Frank and then his son Brian and uh, various adaptations and graphic novels and expansion standard universe these things happen but we're going to get into especially the original first novel and then the most recent ad, uh, adaptation here and see what we can learn see what we can find i think both all three of us have interesting relationship i'm here with amanda nelson um, and jen northington we're going to get into dune for in, in all the different kinds of ways but i guess i want to start here we've had what it's been out for a week now mm-hmm. the, yeah. uh, available and Rebecca and I were talking about this a little bit on the Book Riot podcast yesterday, but I think we can say that Dune is having a moment. Like, it's a thing? Yeah. Is that what you're seeing? What are you guys seeing out there in the world of, of Dune and culture? What, what's your experience of how the, the the wider world is experiencing? I don't think... I, most of the people in my life who are not readers are, are seeing it, which is not yes. the case for most adaptations that I can remember, except for Lord of the Rings. So I think it's definitely having, like, a moment. Yeah, I think... It's got that, this is a big sci-fi epic feel to it, and people are very open to that Mm. aesthetic right now, so I don't think it matters so much to the general population that it's an adaptation, so much as that it's a great big movie with a lot of stars they've probably heard of. Mm -hmm. And I haven't done any, I've tried to avoid 
all commentary on the movie itself because I'd, I'd like to not be polluted by it. And the only people I know that have seen it, y'all, I've seen it, Michelle's seen it, my partner, and then a couple of my friends who I kind of primed because they're, they're good pop culture consumers, but they didn't know anything about Dune. I'm like, are you going to watch this? Are you excited? What do you think about it? And I said, would you please tell me what you think? And I'll, I'll put that to a second. But in your estimation, is this a thing? Is it in the zeitgeist because it's good, because it's interesting, because it's a mess? Like, do people like Dune right now? The movie or the concept? Yeah, the movie, the movie, yeah. the movie. <laughs> um, I think that there are the reactions from people who have read the book and who, who are into Dune the book are different than the reactions right. of people who don't know what Dune is going in. Um, it seems like people who like the book are more critical of this version right. than everyone else. <laughs> Which is not, I mean, that's that's a bit of a dog bites man story, right? right, right, for, right. for book adaptations on the whole. <laughs> but for um, something with a budget this big, I think that yes. that's noticeable. That's notable, yeah. I don't remember. I mean, the big adaptation, the biggest adaptation of like my pulp culture, pulp culture, that's an interesting pulp. Freudian slip, <laughs> pop culture life, I think I have to, it has to be Lord of the Rings, Fellowship yeah. of the Ring in 2001. Yeah. You know, I'm, a, I'm the exact right age to be like a cultural consumer. It's a book I read as a kid. And also the, I guess we would have to say the early, if not inciting stage of these giant fantasy spec fic IP becoming cultural becoming the center of popular culture mm -hmm. and at that moment i think people like me who like the book like those movies so it's not inevitable but it is maybe more common to have like somewhere between nitpicking and full-throated critiques of that you know the, the resulting property here and this just seems to me somewhere between from where, where my, i guess where i'm gonna land is it's not a mess i'm also not this is the definitive dune i've always been looking for my whole mm -hmm. life um so i guess we let's not do too much of that right now but let's talk about our relationship to the book uh, initially here. Um, Jen and I talked a little bit on our foundation show we did for SFF. Yeah. Amanda, I don't I haven't talked to you at all about Dune. Tell me hmm. about your pre-existing condition with Dune. I read Dune in high school because a boyfriend told me to, which I say mm. with much, much shame. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I, most of y'all know my backstory, my literary backstory by now, but I read almost entirely classics for most of my reading life until my kind of mid-adult or mid-20s really and so in high school that's exactly what I was doing I was reading a lot of mid-century American fiction and the guy that I was dating at the time who I eventually married and had children with um, was very military sci-fi only like we both had mm. our this is the only thing that I read um, mm. and I was like well if you want to be with me you have to read this Dickens and he was like same but Dune I was like fine <laughs> so I read it um, and I loved it I loved it in high school I read all of them I have read the entire wow. of the ones written by wow. Frank Herbert oh, okay. I have not all read right. any of the ones by his son because I don't care but I read all of the Herbert ones um, yeah so and that took me you know years because of course it did <laughs> You might have to be our what happens yeah. later on um, okay. oracle here because I think I, my memory is very cloudy. I remember loving Dune. And then on my reread, I really like Dune. I still like the first book. <laughs> I really like Dune. <laughs> yeah. um, but I have no idea what happens next. I don't remember anything. And in, in Children of Dune is next, or is it Dune Messiah next? I don't, I don't even remember this at this point. Children of Dune. I don't remember I, the order. I can tell you the yeah. plot points, but I don't remember the titles. Right. Well, let's come back to that when we get maybe towards the end, as people who are encountering Dune for the first time are like wondering where this could lead if things go mm. well. We know Dune Part 2, which is really the... I guess it really is Dune Part 2, the second... I didn't really look at the page break of where we kind of leave, um, but there's going to be another movie of book one, and then where we're going to uh, expand out from book two and beyond. Jen, remind people who maybe listened to us before or have never encountered us before, what, what was your pre-existing condition with Dune? 
Yeah, I read it as a kid who was obsessed with sci-fi and fantasy of all stripes. So inevitably, somebody was going to give me Dooner. I was going to find it on Just my a matter own. of time. It was just a matter of time. And I believe I read at least half of the second one, which is Dune Messiah, but... I never revisited it, and I certainly didn't finish or continue on with that series. Right. And then I reread when they made the big "This is happening," and here's you know our director announcement for this movie. I reread the book for an episode of SFF, yeah, that we did with Asma Zahanak Khan, who is an amazing um, writer and also a big fan of the book, who has her own you know relationship to it as a Muslim Arab woman. And uh, so we did a podcast about it. So that was my first reread of Dune since I read it as mm. a teenager. Yeah. yeah. We're going to talk about that. Um, some of the issues brought up in that episode, we'll link it in the show notes too, which you can find. And I think we have some other supporting materials that will, we'll, if you're doing further reading um, on it as well. My own is, is very similar. Um, I think I read this when I was 13, which is now 30 years ago, which seems just mind-bogglingly wild. And I can see why I liked it then. I think I like it for different reasons now. Mm-hmm. Here's, a, here's a thing that's, that's weird to think about. So when I read it, if I was 13 when I read this, that would have been 1991. And for those of us who were grew up on Star Wars, this was the great arid period in Star Wars land. Like, if, oh. if Star Wars for me mm. and a lot of people my age was like the big sci-fi, really the big like nerd culture franchise, right? But between 1983 and 1999, we had nothing. There was like you, you got to read some Timothy Zahn novels, maybe <laughs> have fun with that. Like, and so we were looking for where to go. And where we went was Dune and Foundation and Philip K. Dick mm. and some of that stuff like that. Not realizing, because you didn't do this kind of research at a time, even someone like me, that Star Wars is like kind of a skin on top of Dune in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. You're like, what is, wait, another store? We have weird mind power set on a spice, pl- you know, on a desert planet. Like, what is this? Um, but it was one of the things we were going to there as well. And I remember, I must have been like you, Jen, of starting, I can't imagine I didn't read a subsequent book. That would have been completely unlike me. Right. And I think I must have just petered out. I must have divergent franchised it, which I was like, you know what? I can't, <laughs> I can't go on. And I think that is also important to know about the cultural place of Dune is like people know the end of Lord of the Rings. People know the end of, I don't know, what, what are the other, the other big ones we're talking about, Star Wars or things like that. People don't know the end of Dune. They don't, I can't even remember. And so I think that's been a burden on it to become something that is... Lord of the Rings shaped, or even Game of Thrones shaped, or something like that, because it's it kind of peters out. It gets really weird into this sprawling mess, which I think is interesting, but it doesn't lend itself to franchise making, and I think uh, makes it for a high degree of difficulty once you get beyond the last page of the first volume. So that that's our initial um, personal experiences. Let's take a moment here and think about and, and give some context for the the original book. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. 
The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. Shu Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shu Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shu Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased increasingly more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is a perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Who would like to start talking about the book itself, the backstory? I've got some notes. Anyone have anything that they particularly struck them in reading about the backstory of Dune, um, the book? The Kennedy I, thing. I can't get over this. All right, Amanda, take it. Take, take, I'm take sorry. Leave on that. I, I know I interrupted you. That's fine. Like, so I knew when I, when I read the book as a teenager, I knew that Herbert was some kind of conservative political figure, but I never read any further into it. Um, and it turned out he was like a Republican operative, like a very heavily involved with the GOP Nixon supporter. Um, and the Dune series, not the first book, but the whole series is essentially an indictment of Kennedy democracy, like of yeah. Kennedy as neoliberalism, a sort right. of like mid-century de democratic politics. And this like, yeah. you know, uh, cult of personality, white savior 
liberal dude. It's a it's a critique of all of those things, which I think if you only ever read book one, makes no freaking sense whatsoever. Mm. No sense because of the way that it ends. But if you keep going, I think it makes more sense. But the Kennedy thing is fascinating to me that he hated the guy so much and thought that he was so (laughs) dangerous that he wrote what? 20 books about it like i can't get over it it is strange i do think the seeds of that are in book one i Mm -hmm. think that if you are perhaps not paying that much attention it's easy to see paul as a hero because that's what you're used to but Mm -hmm. if you actually read dune the first book it's clear that like Nobody is a hero here. Mm. Like, no one is a hero, Mm. which is going to show up again in my critiques of the movie. Um, But yeah, I think that that I I don't think it's explicit. Uh, And I do think it's interesting. Amanda, you linked us to this Heresies of Dune book essay um, from last year that's on L.A. Review of Books by by Daniel Immerwar. And Mm. it's super fascinating. I mean, you're right. The Kennedy stuff and the political stuff is very interesting. But... For me, you know, I I do think that I do think it's a really interesting book, especially when you consider how it fits into like the zeitgeist that also contains Lord of the Rings and Star yeah. Wars. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, no one is actually a hero here. This is all very nuanced, complicated. Like I actually think it has more in common with Game of Thrones mm-hmm. than it has with Star Wars or Lord of the Rings because. You know, Herbert doesn't believe in good versus evil, really, uh, which is also another critique I have of the movie that we'll talk about later. Right. But uh, <laughs> but it's it's so it's so everything is so complicated. Everybody's playing such a complicated game. Everybody is complicit in some kind of badness yes. or violence or you know whatever you want to call it, and. I don't think that gets talked about a lot. Like, I think that gets lost in the sort of high key plot points of Dune, which is, you know, coming of age, young boy with special powers, you know, leaves the safety of home to, you know, grow up with an indigenous tribe kind of overarching thing. But you lose so much if that's all that gets talked about, which is often all that gets talked about. I think that's a great point. And I had a similar note, and we can get to a little later one or a different section, but like, I think Game of Thrones in terms of complexity is the, is the closest analog. I mean, yeah. it's not science fiction. It's about something completely different, right. except its point of view about humanity or, you know, I guess being, because we have all sorts of different people from different planets here, is very, very similar. I think that's the thing that made it Dune so exciting in the early 60s, right? Yeah. It is this, it's this wildly complicated, it blends mythology and science and religion and sociology. We should talk, or I want to talk, let me say this, I don't know if I should, about Herbert's like influences, right? Because yeah. the, the, I think it holds up very well considering, you know, in a lot of ways. And I think for its time, at least in book one, it's taking on complexity about religion and culture and language and philosophy and politics in a way that you just don't really see happening. It's, it's so fascinating to read in connection with, say, Foundation, which is really trying to simplify mm. things. Like, what if there were just this one master discourse called psychohistory? And if you did the math, you could figure it all out. Dune is kind of the opposite, right? It's like, it's right. all a mess. It's all so yeah. interconnected and interlinked. It's like chaos theory of existence of how things are, uh, gets put together. And, you know, 
there, it, there's there's the simple part of the origin story of Dune, and then there's the very complicated part. Like, the simple part that you read in most of these what's the deal with Dune is, like, Frank Herbert was writing the story about erosion on the Oregon mm-hmm. coast and sees these dunes. He's like, hey, that's interesting. Um, and he was also doing a, I guess you would call a lot of drugs at the same time, <laughs> doing hallucinogens and having the... I guess early to mid-60s, more of a West Coast beatnik kind of experience than later hippiedom that we'd come to find. Remember, this is the early 60s. But the other thing that's going on is he's a libertarian on the West Coast, which is a, Amanda is alluding to, you sometimes, remember California, Washington, Oregon in the mid-50s and early 60s, they were voting for Republicans, mm-hmm. right? It's a much interesting, much, uh, not only it's more interesting, but it's a different environment than we're used to now in how right and left are put together. And the other thing that's happening, it's in the air, is, you know, nascent environmentalism. Um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring comes out in 1962. And the early works of academic colonialism are happening at the same time. Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth comes out in 1960, uh, 1959. And then Black Skin, White Mask come out in 1961. So Herbert wouldn't have read those books. So mm-hmm. those things so much inform later colonial uh, sort of Colonial studies, not colonialism, that's a different thing. Orientalism by Edward Said, which is sort of the foundational text of modern colonial studies, comes out 17 years later. So as much as it feels dated, I think it's ahead of its time, but behind ours uh, in in a lot of ways, which I think is helpful context. Now, the movie, in its faithfulness, I think now feels behind the times (laughs) uh, because it doesn't catch up. And I think we can talk about that a little bit more. Some of your discussion that you mentioned earlier, I think Jen touches on this, but there's other ways it does too. The the other backstory I think is interesting is like, you know, I I love these stories where it's like 20 publishers passed on it, right? Mm -hmm. 20 publishers passed on this book. This little press in, I think, Philadelphia uh, called Chilton Press picked it up because someone liked it. They were mostly like a, a DIY how-to auto repair and knitting sort of publisher. <laughs> it doesn't earn out, and it, it, but it, be, it takes on this like magical word-of-mouth status. And over the, like, the 10 years between 1962 and the early 70s, it becomes at that time a cult phenomenon. And then it feels like a long time ago now, but then it's only 20 years between 1964 and 1984 where Lynch's Dune comes out. I mean, that's not that long ago. We're closer, we're farther away from the Lord of the Rings movies uh, right. than we are to that, which it feels, there, so there was a, a very rapid response there, and it won, you know, the early days of science fiction and fantasy having their own awards. Was it the first Nebula? I'm not, I'm now looking at my notes. I it think was so, the first of, Nebula, it was. One, one of the first Nebula, and it co-won a Hugo at the same time, um, but then became... It's now the best-selling science fiction novel at all time. And Jen, I'm embarrassed to say, I, before I was reading this, if you would have asked me to list the five best sci-fi selling novels of all time, I would have been just mute. I, I wouldn't even have known, <laughs> known where to go. I mean, I guess I would have eventually... I guess I was surprised to find that Dune is the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. But if you would ask me, okay, then what isn't? What is, what is it if it isn't Dune? I wouldn't have an answer. Does that fit in with your own understanding, Jen, of like where it is in terms of the, the sci-fi American canon especially? Yeah, I guess so. Now I'm trying to think of like if I could tell you. I mean, it's right. like it's it's Asimov, Zelazny, Heinlein, Herbert, mm-hmm. and somebody else. Somebody else. Yeah, I'm not somebody sure. Else. But a that's, Philip K. That's, Dick anthology, maybe. Yeah, or right or like something. Yeah. Um, I mean, not now. That's that in. I'm talking about the context of when right. the book came out. Right. Those were the best-selling authors. Um, Wait, I'm sorry, I forgot the question. No, but like it's what primacy. Does, it, does this primacy remain? Right? It's not a, oh. like how how foundational is this sort of modern? I mean, are sci-fi I, nerds reading Dune now? Are they starting have, with Dune now? 
I have jokingly referred to it as a sci-fi shibboleth in this piece I wrote ah. for that I got assigned to write for Audible about about the book versus the movie because I really do think it is one. Like it is, it is not. I don't want to say it's universal among sci-fi fantasy fans, but I do think it is a particular level of sci-fi and fantasy fan. You have read it. Say more like, about that. So you mean you're you're like a, a greater nerd theory? Like if you have yeah, to sort of get to pass it to get the next. If level you or consider like that? yourself right. like a sci-fi connoisseur, mm-hmm. I think you've read Dune. Like okay. I can't imagine that uh, not being part of your. Over- if you just like sci-fi and fantasy, maybe you haven't read it. Like mm-hmm. p- perhaps even probably you haven't read it. But if you consider yourself a sci-fi person in particular, I would be surprised if you haven't read Dune. Hmm. I guess that's a good transition to what's it like to read this book now? Like, we can never take off our blinders of having read it before. Um, Amanda, on your reread, what was your impression of, of doing the book? It's so immersive and also uh, pushes you out constantly, which is such a weird reading experience, I think. Yeah. Because you, you're in it. Like, from the jump, this kid's getting tortured. You're here for, like, this mom freaking out. Like, there's so much going on immediately. And he's pretty good at putting a reader in a world with like unrecognizable names and all that kind of stuff like centering you in the experience but then the dialogue is so strange and they're immediately talking about like yeah but he he's a person but is he a human and you're like what (laughs) what does that even mean and they just they never explain it and that's how he rolls through the whole book it's like there's so many distinctions between like moral and ethical distinctions he's making them that just read like complete nonsense to me now but mm-hmm. I don't care enough to stop reading it because it's a good story. But I think that the things that Herbert wants you to think about when you're reading it, most people are probably not thinking about because he's a terrible writer of dialogue. But, mm, the, the dialogue <laughs> is tough. And I think that so comes bad. across in the movie, too, to some it's degree, so right? Bad. What's, the, the, what's like, the most memorable line from Dune? It's like, fear is the mind killer. Fear's what's the, the next one? Yeah. Kind of tough. Uh, there isn't that. one. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, so I think that's like it's such a it's a weird reading experience because you're in it so you're in the world so immediately yeah. and for the rest of the th- and there's like mystery elements like who were the fremen like what's going on here and you're here mm. for the ride but the 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 big things he wants you to get I don't think people are gonna get or I don't think I got even really because uh, he's just not he's not a he's not a very good writer in a lot of ways. So yeah, that's uh, I think on the dialogue. I, the the way I came at that same kind of experience, I think, was that the con- there's people say things, but they don't have conversations. Like they talk <laughs> at each other. They just sort of say <laughs> things to each other. And I was struck because I, for the foundation um, show we did, I was like trying to compare, especially the adaptation version. I was like, how is this not working? I was like, okay, let me go watch the first few episodes of Game of Thrones because that worked. And I don't remember why, and I just liked it. It's relationship. It's relation. Mm-hmm. Oh, so much of it is relationship building, and people have conversations where they learn, and there's tension, and there's like little story arcs even between little scenes with just two people talking. Foundation certainly doesn't do that. And I think Dune doesn't really do that. Like, what are the relationships I, between the people that matter? Jen, are you on the oh, same wavelength I, here? I so disagree with okay, you. Okay, go. And let's go. it's funny because <laughs> it's now been, what, a year and a half, two years since I reread it. So I, like, and I couldn't find my copy. I, like, I, I looked for it because I wanted to check the page count for where the movie got to versus where the book did and then my copy was gone so I couldn't (laughs) I was like oh shoot so but my overwhelming feeling of 
having read Dune at least twice now, if not maybe one or two more times, is that the characters, I know exactly how they're all connected and why they care about each other Mm. and what their relationships are and who's got a fraught relationship with who and, you know, why that is. And I, I, I absolutely feel like those character relationships are there and important to me now because it's been a minute and but it's funny to me i did not have i don't have a memory of rereading it being like wow he's a bad writer like i don't remember feeling that way and i i don't remember thinking boy he's a great writer like i don't remember that either but whatever it was i guess it worked enough for me that my feeling of having read it is yeah i know I know why Jessica had a boy instead of a girl like she was supposed to. I know why there's this complicated relationship between Hawat and Jessica. I know what Leto and Jessica's marriage is like. I know what Mm. Paul feels about everybody around him. Like, I know those things. So clearly the book must have told me because the movie sure didn't. Nope. (laughs) Maybe to split the needle there, I think there's maybe we could be saying the same thing in different ways, which is maybe Amanda and I responding to the actual dialogue, like parentheses dialogue is pretty sparse, but Mm. there's a lot of internal dialogue. A lot of, there's a lot of thinking that happens in people's heads where you do get that richness, like maybe more, yeah, even more than that. I think also becomes difficult to translate onto the screen because if you're not doing voiceovers, internal discourse is very difficult to represent yeah. in a way there. So I think that one of the one of the aridnesses that comes emotional aridness of the movie, I think, is because you don't get the richness that's not coming through in the lines that people say, um, mm. which are pretty bare. But I agree with you, Jen. I do think the relationships are interesting. They just are everyone thinking about each other is how we get those relationships <laughs> that's fair. That's mostly fair. put together as well. So what's the best thing about the book? Like is it the world building? Is it the complexity? Like what what do people for what people are for Dune? What are they for? Admittedly, I was young, so mm-hmm. you know whatever. But when I read it, the thing that I liked about it the most, and I, and I think that stands up upon my reread, um, is that it's so he's doing so he's juggling so many plates that it it's like a feat. It's a it's yeah. a fascinating thing to watch an author do. Like this is why I say he's a, like he's a very good plotter. He's not a great dialogue mm-hmm. writer, but he's such a good plotter, and everybody's playing such a long game. That, yes. he, that he somehow is keeping track of for not just an entire novel, but for 20 novels, you know, and it continues. Oh, yeah. All of these threads continue <laughs> on and on and on forever. And that's just like that brain is fascinating to me. And I and it's so it's like singular. I mean, we've got Game of Thrones, but it's not finished, you know, and we've got <laughs> what like we have a lot of big epic complicated universes in pop culture now, but I don't think there's anything that's so destiny that's like so tied to the idea of destiny and fate and things being foretold which means that the author had to foretell them from page one and we're on like page five thousand and that is it's just it's it's amazing it's it's an amazing feat and that's the thing that i think is the that's i think that makes it singular that's the best thing about it epic is almost too small to think about when we think about epic because this is galactic and millennia um, spanning mm-hmm. and you know we start in the middle and because we also we get these weird paratextual introductions to chapters that are written from the future right so the whole thing is like a text like it's a sacred text of a kind yes. or a historical yes. document of some kind which makes you feel that it's even bigger like this is just one and all these other subtexts and other readings that go on to it there's things that happened way in the past before this um, the Bene Gesserit have been around for thousands of years and they're playing in a thousand year game to try to get mm-hmm. this you know one being created so it's not, it doesn't even have like, 
I, I always thought that the Lord of the Rings had the deepest world building I'd ever experienced because like mm. there's the second age and the third age and this mm. th- that would be like one pocket of the Dune averse, <laughs> right? That's just like one little piece of it, Middle Earth, in that way. And I think I, when you say plate spinning, the way I reacted in a, in a way, the book's biggest topic is complexity of how complex mm-hmm. things are, because Lord of the Rings, you got to get rid of the ring. Star Wars, we got to get rid of Darth Vader and the Emperor. Game of Thrones, even who's going to sit on the throne? What's the one sentence plot of of Dune? Uh, <laughs> I mean, Jen, like, what, what is? The, I mean, what do we? What is the stakes? What are the? What do we care about in Dune? Because I think that's something that you are alluding to a little bit when you talk about the relationships. Is it's the mess, right? Is it the mess, or like, right. what, what do we care about when we? What do we care about if we care about what's going on in Dune? Well, yeah, and I think this is where often when you try to simplify, you lose that complexity because, like, at the highest level, it's like, you know, coming-of-age story, you know, foretold, powerful child born with weird powers has to come into his own, into his destiny. But, like, that totally erases the fact Mm -hmm. that, like, Paul is constantly trying to figure out how to have any agency within the magnificently long-term, like Amanda said, machinations of everyone around him. Mm -hmm. And that that destiny is not a good thing. He knows from the jump people are going to die and he doesn't feel great about it. Like, this is not a noble quest. This is a quest for power to try to be the least amount of evil, not Mm -hmm. the the most right. Uh, And I think also something that really got lost for me in the movie and that as it was so important to me as a as a teenager reading this probably because I also was swimming in these waters of environmentalism is the the relationship between the Fremen and Arrakis like yeah. they are they have talk about a long game they are working on a, like a generations long terraforming project in secret it's amazing. Yeah. Like that it's just as long of a game as the Bene Gesserit are playing or you know the Imperial House is playing like they're playing their own long game and seeing how all of those games like bounce off of each other and interact and and then the mess of it like you said is is what's so interesting about that book. I would be remiss too, and you touched on it. And it's one of those things that's almost too obvious if you have any experience with Dune to say but we might as well say it out loud as people are experienced for the first time. The setting's unbelievable. Like you talked mm-hmm. about the yeah. the Fremen's relation with Arrakis, but like I don't know what to say. Desert planet with giant worms is cool. Still <laughs> suits are cool. Chris knives are cool. Like I think that my thirteen year old self was really cool. re- resolved. Was re- mostly was reacting to. Wow, is this cool? Look at the way they you know they basically like dehydrate each other like raisins when they die and take yes. each other's water and all. There's like a very feels like a very organic. Culture building. Sometimes we mistake world building and culture building when we talk about mm. these things. And I think culture building is maybe more powerful than world building, or at least that's what we talk about when we talk about world building. Does it feel like this is how people might actually respond in the environment in which we find them? And that really oh. feels inevitable almost in a way that is probably not, but it's very seductive in its own way. Go ahead, Jen. And, and I think we have to say at this point, we probably should have said it sooner, that that culture building is so heavily influenced by yes. Islam mm-hmm. and other uh, North African cultures and also um, native cultures in the United States. So, you know, Herbert was borrowing wholesale in some mm-hmm. cases from indigenous cultures uh, and weaving those elements. I mean, you can't have the story no. without Islam. Like, you just can't. It doesn't 
it, the book doesn't exist without that influence, for, for example. And linguistically, it's so obvious. Like, he's not trying to hide yeah. it, right? Because, like, yeah. he's, he's, no, he's using no. these, some he's of it are actual words. Arabic terms. Yeah. Some of them are yep. kind of distorted or otherwise. But it's the, the, the text is the subtext here. In a lot of ways, the very simple, might be more accurate culture reading, this is like the story of Western colonialism in the Middle East is trying yes. to grapple with that in yes. some ways, in some ways that don't yeah. hold up as well, but in a fundamentally right. way, trying to take it seriously and upend in with the tools that he has, I should say, conventional mm-hmm. narratives about how those things go. Even something like Lawrence of Arabia, which came out, you know, right as Herbert's writing Dune, right? Mm. And to the point where he has to rewrite a bunch of it because it's like, well, this is too close to what Lawrence of yeah. Arabia is doing. And Lawrence of Arabia is its own, it's more complicated of that now, right? Eventually, right. Lawrence of Arabia tried to, you know, basically he was charged by the British with helping the Turks try to beat the Ottoman Empire for their goals, but also for the British Empire's goals. When the war is over, Lawrence of Arabia advocates for Arab self-determination and fails, right? So that's in the water of what's going on too now, still centering white people and the way that the Mm -hmm. movie and certainly the casting. And I think the book still does. I read it with this lens. Like, it's interesting some of the, the, the other allusions that are in the book, right? This is the House of Atreides. For those of you who are Greek mythology myths, the House of Atreides mm-hmm. is its own thing. You know, the Atreides are the brothers Menelaus and Agamemnon, Agamemnon being the leader of the Greek army in the Trojan War. Menelaus, his wife Helen absconds, is stolen, various readings by Paris, which initiates the Trojan War. Let's just say that things don't go great for the Atreides yeah. brothers. Um, but it's Greek, right? In Greek, Greek mythology has an interesting place in how we understand West versus East. Mm-hmm. Are they white? Are they Westerners? It's very complicated. And then the movie does some weird stuff about bullfighting and bagpipes, which I think is is bringing <laughs> it's bringing it further towards you know, like white Europe, um, yeah, <laughs> and and decomplicating some of the other things there. And the Harkonnens are clearly some sort of Nordic, you know, yeah. exaggeration stereotype, whatever that's mm-hmm. going on there. But he's remixing. To various levels of success, various real-world Middle Eastern, Eastern, Western tensions, I think, Mm -hmm. is probably the best way to put it generously. doesn't always go super well. And reading that again, I was super worried about this, honestly. I was really worried. Like, is this going to be a racist mess? And my sense is that it's not. Like, it's definitely flawed. But I didn't Mm -hmm. have a lot of cringe moments, necessarily. Now, now we can get to some of them. We're actually on the the actual bad guy side, I think, or maybe the worst um, in terms of fat phobia and homophobia and stuff. But Amanda, did you have... Did your your shoulders raise that much? Or how were you feeling about it as reading it as as a modern reader with all of our pseudo-modern sensibilities? I mean, I there were in the less good things part. I have some stuff that yeah, I'm kind of know, transitioning there. Did yeah, you see that? Okay. You know, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I didn't know if you wanted me to talk about yeah, like, that's specifically fine. whatever you'd like to like, do. Whatever you'd like to do. Yeah. Um, I don't. I think I had the same experience with the racial elements that you did, where I was like, this would probably not play well if it were written today. But I'm not like mad at it, or you know, like I, it's obviously not without flaws. But I'm not gonna throw the thing in the garbage. Like I have literally mm-hmm. done with other you know, classic <laughs> sci-fi novels. Where I'm like, I can't deal with this. Like, like I did right. this is awful. Yeah, um, I did not put it in the trash. <laughs> um, but the I 
another reason i mean i think a bigger reason that this book would probably not be written today is the gender issues like yeah this is an entire novel about the search for a non-binary person we've got those we're good like this is Mm -hmm. fine you know if somebody presented this novel to a publisher in 2021 i feel like the editor would be like but we this is not this is not actually a problem like you could just go next door probably and because these people are alive i don't understand what this is about you know Mm -hmm. um and so when I finished my reread, I actually texted Jen. It was like, Jen, this is yes. just a book about a non-binary person. She was like, yes, yes, correct. And I was like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, like you mentioned, the fatphobia is awful. And it's, oh, it's really so bad. Movie, like, I really wanted the movie to do something with that. Because I think yep. that's, that, that's the most agreed like the most egregious just nonsense part of the novel. But they didn't. And so I have a lot to say about that. But the fatphobia in the book... In the movie, it's the only signal that the Harkonnens are bad. In the in yeah. the in the book, we have actual reasons why the Harkonnens are bad. Like you're given actual moral, ethical character reasons, but um, not many. And <laughs> like like not enough to make up for it. Just that they just never stop talking about it. Never stop talking about it. Yeah, he's always being compared to the Harkonnen, the Baron, who is this character who's supposed to be like grossly overweight. Quote quote. You know, um, he's always being compared to the physicality of people around him, and it's just ugh. That made me cringe. Lots and lots and lots. It does make me, you know, one of the things that's moved on, I think those discussions and representations are, you know, th- those things age the worst, right? They mm-hmm. definitely age the worst. But I think also the construction of a modern, quote, quote unquote, good villain are way different, like of mm-hmm. what we expect from a villain. Or even if there is a villain, as Jen was alluding to earlier, of like the complexity, the situation, the power dynamics, the, you know, people have different relationships with power dynamics, but like what we want from the quote unquote bad guy is way different. Even so looking at someone like very, like the biggest pop culture one you can think of right now, like Thanos, right? Is about 10,000 times more interesting than Baron Harkonnen, honestly. Like it's clearly a bad guy. He's an evil guy, but it's like got an idea. That's not just, I want to get my kid on the throne. Like that's so, it doesn't feel like interesting at all. Like Darth Vader, classic one. You know, the one for me as a kid, I was like, whoa, there are things that I understand about Darth Vader. He's alone and wants his son and all that stuff. The Harkonnens have none of that. Now, maybe in books 11 through 5,000, some of that other stuff happens. (laughs) But like, there might as well be like a cardboard cutout of like bad guy stereotypes. Like they're ugly and they're fat and they don't have any hair and they've got all these weapons and they say these weird things and they want things that are clearly bad and selfish and wrong. and they're gay. And Let's they're not gay. And they're gay. The book in the book, he is coded as well. Not even just coded. No, as, bring like, me the boy. We're right? told it's like that stuff he's like gay. That. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's it's bad. Bad. That, bad, bad. Mercifully, the movie left out. Even if it didn't yeah. leave out everything, that part I was like, could, could, are they at least aware enough to leave that part out? And maybe that was intentional or not. But that part was not in the movie. Um, to this point, uh, there's yeah the good. There's a really good the white savior narrative in Slate. Um, we'll put mm-hmm. it in the show notes there as well. Let's do let's do most memorable bits. I mean, the sandworms, right? The sandworms are amazing. Like the whole of, thing. About, wait, of the book or the movie? What are we? Let's do the book. The book for just okay, a minute, okay. right? Like the whole, yes. the whole sort of like logist, the, like the trade craft of worms is so fun. Like yeah. it's like how do you how do you get around <laughs> how do you them? Write how do you it? avoid yeah. them? Like how, yeah, like so fascinating. I thought that detail stuff is so amazing. So that was my number one draft pick for what really stuck out to me as fun and interesting. Um, Jen, how about you? What really sticks out to you as a highlight uh, of the book? As a kid, I was obsessed with the still suits. I mm. wanted a still suit. Yeah. I, I was like, this is the most amazing idea in the world. And I think that's incredible. And when I was rereading it a couple of years ago, I got really into Alia, the sister, yes. and the just that whole 
concept of like this child who's been changed in the womb and is now this preternaturally I don't even know what word to use here. Conscious. Uh, conscious. Yeah, that's probably the right word. Like, I was just like, oh, like that. I feel like a lot of people do, you know, children who are mature or smart or whatever mm-hmm. before their times. But the the lengths to which Ali is portrayed, but also the fact that she gets to have a character that's not just I am this like incredibly conscious human like she gets to be other things yeah i actually really loved upon the reread it's like if it's almost like if like uh the three-eyed raven brandon stark like mm-hmm. wanted things you get yes. alia like, yeah. that actually yeah. had a little bit of like i know all i remember everything and i see all this stuff but also i want my mother to survive you know and, that kind of and stuff. favorite scene i'm maybe i'm jumping ahead but i That's can't fine. not say my favorite scene is the dinner scene on arrakis mm-hmm. where we really get to see kinds interacting with leto and and all of these like under the radar thing there's so much subtext and people are like poking at each other in these really subtle ways and there's so much wheeling and dealing going on and establishing who's in allied with who and what's what's plotting and ugh, all of wh- whose goals are being advanced or not advanced like it's so good i love that dinner, dinner I, you know of the memorable scenes i think for me that's the one that sticks out in a, in a second read like i think as a mm-hmm. kid i probably wouldn't have been oh, as excited yeah, no. about th- i much more right. want like the Jameis paul like like duel, yes, that yes. kind of stuff, which again is pretty cool. But yeah, that one with Stilgar, especially in all these like shadow kind of messages that people aren't picking up and are picking mm-hmm. up um, for sure. Amanda, how about you? What sticks out as, as highlights? Uh, the Benny Jesseret. I was obsessed with the Benny Jesseret from mm. the jump. And now that the, the book that I just finished before I reread this was Lauren Groff's new book, Matrix. Uh, which is about like a community of nuns in yeah. the, in the 12th century that seclude themselves from men and build this whole like self-functioning community. So I'm very like nuns on the brain right now. And <laughs> going from that to the Bene Gesserit and like, oh, this would what would ha- this is like what the world would look like if Lauren Groff's women r- ruled it. Yes, and, like, so Illuminati space it. nuns. I'm all yes. in for Illuminati, Illuminati space, nuns. space nuns. So in. It's amazing. And like they they can control you, but they kind of don't care to. But they kind of absolutely mm. do. And like they're not on the throne, but they control the throne. And it it has a bit too much of the like behind every man is a strong woman crap yeah. which I don't mm. love but they're not even behind like they're just right in front of you making you do what you don't want to do because they planned it 4,000 years ago whoops sorry right. like that's just it's fascinating to me also the Can hand ask- signal oh, thing yeah yes. like, it's so so like in thinking about the dinner scene they have whole conversations not just the Atreides with each other but also with their staff using mm-hmm. hand yes. signals and it's a little bit in the movie but it's like it's not just instructions or one word. They're having like sentence long, paragraph long yeah. combos with each other that no one else is noticing. Like, is no one else noticing right. that? How do you do that? How do you have such the an sign intricate... language influence? Right. Yeah. How do you have such an intricate sign language with one hand under a table that no one notices? I just have a lot of questions about that. I didn't catch it. I, I caught that on the reread of like, oh, they're using hand signals. But that was one thing where the movie actually did something for me. It's like, oh, yeah. that's really useful, actually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I, I didn't in the book, it's the spatial arrangement. It's harder to track. But like, oh, yeah, if you're sitting to the side of someone or your hands behind a chair and someone can see you, you could have this whole other conversation, which is a nice representation of of sign language that it's like there are strengths, right? It's not just, mm. you know, a simple like, well, this is what you do when you can't talk and too bad for you oh, guys. No. Like, There's yeah. a very, very robust um, you know, wonder, communication system at play. 
I wonder. I now I have to go looking to see if somebody from the deaf community has oh. has written about the use of hand signals in the book or the movie. I would love to read that piece. Mm-hmm. I will. I will have to do some research. We'll put it in the show notes if I can find one. Yeah, and if anyone's seen one, uh, there's an adaptation nation email. Oh, address. hit me with it then. I should have. I, I made asked. one. <laughs> it's adaptation nation at bookriot.com. Boy, that hey, would have been hey. hard for me to guess uh, in the moment. <laughs> Other things in terms of the actual book reading experience that are. Bummers, downers, mistakes, problems, tough hangs, you know, whatever else we want to call them. I had a problem with Jessica and Leto's relationship. Like the fact that he would not marry her because he needed to be available for political scheming. Um, Mm. Like he needed the other houses to consider that he was available, even though very obviously everyone else knows that he was not available. Like you're not hide for such sophisticated schemers. The fact that they thought they were hiding, that they were like deeply in love and were never going to touch anyone else ever for the rest of time was like, come on, come on. Like, Oh, Oh, so you're saying like, how is this working on anybody? Like you get like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see. Because anyone who wanted to to marry the Duke for political reasons would have wanted a child from that. And that's not going to happen because he's so deeply in love with this woman. Like, and also, would anybody want to get on the bad side of a Benny Jesseret warrior princess? Probably that no. part I, I wasn't exactly sure about either. So, like, it's like kind of anyone you get married as a, as a man in a noble house. You have a Benny Jesseret concubine is sort of a thing that people just yeah. do, and then you mm-hmm. marry someone else in the Lansrad. And I was like, boy, you really are going to that with your eyes closed. Right. <laughs> 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 that's what we're just sort of agreeing. Good luck. To. It's yeah. I guess it's kind of a plot hole or. I don't know. It doesn't really uh, th- that doesn't really play out. I-, I didn't really have too much to be honest with you. I think I just want more from bad guys now. Mm-hmm. A- other than I want yeah. revenge. Um, I thought the 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 plot to kill Harkonnen by the Doctor was actually kind of cool and surprising. You know, I think that's another yeah. thing we've come a little bit accustomed to later, where someone you think is the main character dies in the first half. Spoiler alert! Right. Should have been at the beginning. But I, in hindsight, it was it was really interesting that scene where there's a tooth and you can understand his motives and he's not right and he's mm-hmm. not wrong and he's bad and he's good, um, and how naive Leto is and it kind of works right. There's a very Ned yeah. Starkian quality to yeah. um, the good Baron like, himself. It, it's all Game of Thrones reference. I've been into it for the last couple <laughs> weeks, so I'm sorry about that. Go ahead, Amanda. No, I was just gonna say it's that uber that like overly simplistic honorable ding dong of a character. (laughs) You're so sweet, and I love that. I love all of your feelings, but you're you're a little you're a little dumb. (laughs) Is Duke Leto a himbo? I'm I'm not conversing in these terms enough. I'm gonna have to edit that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Yeah, that's a good question Uh, for those of you who know what that is. I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, the the other thing that struck me again, I don't remember the time, is the idea that as you peel back the layers of the Fremen, like they're definitely colonized, but they're not subject in a way that we understand it. Like they've got their own networks, they've got their own plans. Like they would prefer, of course, not to have the Harkonnens or Atreides there, but they're working on their own plans. They don't really need a savior in the way um, that you know, if they play the long enough game, I guess. If they play yeah. a long enough game and they terraform the world and Spice kind of goes away or they can control it, which they already kind of are by paying off the guild, like that part was pretty mm-hmm. cool as well. Um, that representation of the subject people 
was more interesting than even movies you see today that are about this. Mm-hmm. Like even something like, I don't know, Hunger Games and the different things. Like right. all these people are so downtrodden that they're basically rolling around in rags and have no agency at all. And that's not the Fremen at all. And that's part of the plot. No. But I thought something that a lot of representations of oppression could learn from is that it's not as simple as liber, uh, liberated or uh, or subject. Like there's a bunch of um, experiences and vibrancies that exist between those two poles. So that was, I well, thought that was a, a warm, warmly welcomed. I think that actually reminds me of a thing I really, I had trouble with uh, in the book and then subsequently in mm. all the adaptations, is, which is that, you know, there's this idea that the Bene Gesserit have seeded these prophecies throughout the galaxy yeah. over the years to like pave the way for their own goals and missions. And I think this was, Maybe in that the slate piece we referenced earlier that we're going to link to, but this idea that it takes an off an outside person yeah, to come right. and save your culture, it's like, like, are we buying that? Like, are we really <laughs> buying that? Like, uh, ha, I, I don't know. Like that part, I was just like, oh yeah, like if it has to be an off world, do you know what I mean? Somebody's yeah. coming from outside of the system to save us. Like, I just am like, uh most of the prophecies that have shown up in the religions that I've studied are about people from inside the community Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. So like the idea that like a people would be so susceptible to being told that like, it's going to take an outside person to come and save them is like, that's suspect. I think that's, that's like Western, you know, Orientalism, et cetera, exceptionalism at work there. Yeah, I I see. I I definitely agree with that. I think for me, the interesting that, that it's two sided, right? There's a critique of, of religion in the idea that it can be manipulated too, right? Yes. Like if you just, yes. these are Which also I'm, political I'm systems. Yeah, me I'm too. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very, it's complicated, but that is an interesting way of, of looking. But the, but the seduction of a messiah, I think, you know, we're, we're living in that world of the superhero yes. ourselves, right? This idea if, if only one person were sufficiently smart or clever yes. or infused with gamma rays, this could all be better. <laughs> when the reality is, you know, and this is, this goes right back to Fanon, it's like community led identity centric internal he was really like they need guns but let's put it that to the side for just saying like the best and most enduring revolutions happen because the people who need the liberation do it themselves and they build it for their own aims and this and i think that's also the subject like this is this is an exploiting move by the ben jester right and it's not going to work um, and, and Paul sees what the the ramifications are. So the the arrogance of thinking that you can manipulate a whole people through mm-hmm. religion and then control it after the fact is like right. the high, uh, hubris to the to the nth degree. Anything else about the book before we move on to the the most recent adaptation? Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Inez Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. 
Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's do it then. The movie. I have a whole section for her for what it is and how did it come to be. This is more interesting if it's been out for a while. I think it, this is pretty straightforward, right? Like people are looking yeah. for the next Game of Thrones, Star Wars, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Villeneuve makes very beautiful science fiction worlds. Chalamet and Zendaya are big stars. And this is one of the top five existing IP franchises that do not have an ongoing lucrative uh, uh franchise right it's like yep. kind of an arranged right. marriage like it i'm is. not sure it's one of the heart but it's one of the the, the cash register is, is there anything i'm missing in that formulation jen i do think it is worth noting all of the confusion around what this movie was in that yeah. they really buried that it was only part one yeah. until right before it came out like that was not news that we knew for a good minute there and then they had not greenlit a second one, which is fascinating. I, I do look forward to the investigative, you know, <laughs> pop culture journalism that happens around finding out exactly, like, was it just they were like, we need to see the box office receipts before we give you the money? Or was there something else going on there? I don't know. But I think it's a really weird choice because now we have to wait until 2023 because it wasn't greenlit. They couldn't film it at the same time, yeah. which is what everybody else does right. when they're breaking a movie into parts. You film it all at the same freaking time. Mm -hmm. But that's not what happened here. So I actually am super curious once it's been out for longer and, and you know, maybe lips are a little looser, we find out some more insider info about how what what was involved in that decision making yeah amanda a lot of people have said especially since the lynchian whatever you want to call that you know it's now it's not had a couple of swings where it was so bad in a bomb and then it's now it has sort of a apparently a cult following of some kind i cannot see it i think it's i find the movie completely unwatchable that's me and then dune got the reputation of being unfilmable which to me now i guess i could understand that in 1990 does this does this feel like an unfilmable book to you, Amanda? 
Um, well, like, that's kind of an interesting way of asking if this adaptation was any good. <laughs> yeah, how about that? <laughs> well done, I see. Um, I, I, yes, I think it is unfilmable and continues mm. to be, which is not to say this is a bad movie. Right. And I enjoyed watching it. And I think that I'm excited for part two and I will watch part two and that will be great, I'm sure. Um, but is it... Like, is it the Lord of the Rings kind of adaptation where Lord of the Rings was such a great book to screen situation? Mm -hmm. No, no. Like, as so much of the book is left completely unexplained in a way that makes a viewer who has never read Dune lost at sea, like pretty yeah. lost at sea. So this has been the um, the thing that I've heard most from my friends who have not read the book, who watched the movie, is that they they liked it and it was pretty and it was fun, but they had no idea what was going on most of yeah, the time. Yeah, but like literally what's going on. Yeah, but like yeah. Yeah. the word mentat is never said. Why does that guy, yep. why do his eyes blink that way? Like what, why, what is the way everyone talks about? Like the, they, they describe the way as the thing they're doing with their voice, but also the thing that they've done on Arrakis to prepare a way. Like nothing right. makes sense. None of the mythology is explained. And I think that it it's unadaptable because of what we were saying about the dialogue. We're so much of the mm. plot is revealed through what people are thinking as they're in conversation with each other. And unless you completely change how people communicate, you can't make that, or at least no one has yet made that into a movie that is um, both good to watch and also true to the, the source material. So it's I, not... Oh, go ahead, Jen. I, I think it is adaptable. I think you just have to do it as prestige TV. It's, mm. it's so clear to me, at least, that book one could be done as a semi-limited series, like take as many episodes as you need, have, you know, the Imperial princess doing voiceover or whatever. Mm. Like, do I think there's ways to do it. I think we've mm. seen people do similar things with other properties that are very dense. I think it's going to be interesting to see what Wheel of Time does because mm. there's a whole deep, deep <laughs> amount of world building in that that they're going to have to reckon with to make it intelligible. Mm. And I think, I think, I think there are ways to do it. I don't think you can do it shot for shot, dialogue for dialogue, scene yeah. for scene, which is what I think this movie tried to do and part of the reason it failed for me but i think that uh you could do it i do think you could do it yeah i think historically the unfilmable bits was how do you shoot giant sandworms that doesn't right, look yeah. ridiculous we've solved that problem we, and we have solved that problem <laughs> and you know and, and the sandworms are i don't know what else you want from a giant sandworm in the movie <laughs> right it looks uh, amazing and i think i think I, I like that point you made jen like you need to get the essence of the movie, you would need to change it, or the book, you would need to change yeah. it for the screen, because for the exact same reasons Amanda was saying it's unfilmable, as written it's unfilmable to do it as it is, mm -hmm. so you need to make some of the internal stuff explicit somehow, whether that you make it some dialogue, maybe you do do voiceover, um, but I, I agree with you, that's my note at the end, is like, what's your what's your biggest, what the thing would you change, and I said, I would change the format, I would flop yeah. Foundation and, and Dune, I would make Foundation yeah. one three-hour movie with these vignettes that actually do what's, you know, in the book, <laughs> Um, hot take, um, and then make this a ongoing Game of Thrones-like mm -hmm. series. And maybe, you know, I, I don't know, does it end in the same place? I don't know. You get to spend a lot more time with it. You know, Game yeah. of Thrones season one is eight to 10 hours, I guess, of film. And this is 20 or two hours and 20 minutes mm -hmm. uh, for half the book. So even if you get two pieces, that's still half as many minutes you're spending with one 
really long book. And I, I mean, all you have to do is cut out all the scenes of Zendaya looking over her shoulder dreamily, and you've got another thirty minutes solid. But then she's plot. not in the movie, which is such yep. a <laughs> such a ugh. I, we'll get into that well, later. Well, let's 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 stop. Let's take that because we didn't talk. We didn't dwell too much on Jen. What you were talking about, sort of. They seem to feel like they were in some sort of marketing handcuffs about how to portray what this movie is. That's Dune Part 1. And I was even surprised to see, and I assume you guys saw it too. I think, Jen, you saw it at Drive-In, and Amanda, you saw it at home like I did. Mm -hmm. That when the title card comes up, it says Dune, and then Part 1 right under it. I didn't even notice, to be perfectly honest. which was the first time I'd seen that, right? It wasn't on any of the marketing materials. um, And it wasn't communicated at all. Now, most people... Jen and I had some furious DMs about what is this movie? Like, are yes. they doing the whole thing? And we, you found an interview with Villeneuve that was like more than strongly hinting that it was not the whole book and that they yep. were going to do the second part, which maybe there was a nod, nod, wink, wink, knowing, look, knowing, look agreement between Warner Brothers and, and yeah. Villeneuve. Um, but that was really weird because if you didn't, I guess the part one lets you off the hook a little bit for the end of this movie, which is a very much like Fellowship of the Rings. And now we're going to walk yeah. uh, together yeah. into the future. Without part one, people think that's the end of the movie and they're mad, right? I think right. they're really mad. So they have to do a little bit both. But they also didn't want to tell us from the beginning it was part one because they didn't agree to do it, which is very strange. So I, so I hadn't weird. thought about the the New Yorker or Vulture long article oral history of why that's doing yes. part one, not filmed at the same time. I, I hadn't thought about that, but I am looking forward to the TikTok um, of how that gets <laughs> made as well. Let's talk about casting uh, mm. for a minute as we talk about Zendaya. You know... I am not surprised. I don't know if I would have done anything differently given the constraints they set for themselves. Like, how do you bring, you can't bring her in earlier, right? Um, And to have her in the book more in the present tense, you even go further into the book. I think they were trying to have their cake and eat it too with all of those long lingering shots of looking over your shoulder at Zendaya with her, the sunset in the background of like, yeah, she's in the movie. And so we're not lying to you, but she's in like seven minutes of the movie and has like maybe 10 lines of dialogue. At the end, most of it is exposition, right? And yeah. not anything about her character, who she is, what she wants, what she's doing there. Yeah, nothing, nothing. nothing. Which the book also doesn't do, frankly, until much later. Um, well, yeah, into the book as well. Other thoughts about casting? But you can fix these things. Oh if yeah, you decide yeah. to. Right, 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 right. Amanda, let's talk about cast. I mean, everyone. I mean, Zendaya and Chalamet are probably your number one and two, or one A and one B draft picks for young Hollywood stars, right? I mean, I'm not sure. It's almost so obvious. That's one of my notes about the casting. All the <laughs> casting felt super obvious to me. Yeah. What were your thoughts about the casting, Amanda? I cannot deal with Timothy Chalamet. Like, I, okay. I don't. I don't understand the cultural obsession with him mm-hmm. right now it weirds me out that he looks like a middle schooler and all of my like lady friends who are almost 40 are like deeply into him and it freaks me. i don't get it he's like this <laughs> tiny little i don't understand anyway he had no fa- he makes no facial expression i got like yeah. 30 minutes into this movie and i remember turning to bob who i was watching it with and was like does he move his face has he moved his face like <laughs> any part of his face has, has mm. it moved? And the answer was no. He didn't make, a, like, literally did not make a facial expression until he had a breakdown in the tent after his father died. Mm. That's it. And that is halfway through the film. So that was gross. My favorite casting was, I don't even know her name, but the actress who played Keens was fantastic. She was yes. great. I should look that up. I should have had yeah, the, I have the cast it. list. I have you it have it, it right, okay, Jen? What's her name? Um, yep, she was I my favorite. Do. She was my, the her best name part. is sh- her, main, her name is Sharon Duncan Brewster. 
Yeah, and she was one of the casting choices Winner. I was the most excited about when when I found out they were gender bending uh, yeah. Liet Kynes because he's a dude in the book, and I yeah. was like, oh, this is this is so juicy and interesting. She didn't get to do enough, but she was great. She was. Great. I actually also really liked Javier Bardem as Stilgar. <laughs> like mm. he brought this just stern sand daddy energy to that character. Like he just <laughs> oh was my so God. mad. Like he just was irritated at everyone. Didn't want to be anywhere that he was at that moment ever. And it was it was almost comic relief, which is not intentional that character's not supposed to be funny but i think he did it on purpose a little bit it, it, it lightened it up a little it, it humanized the fremen in a way that the movie had done zero of up until that right. moment up until javier yeah. bardem came in and spat at leto um and you're like oh no wait that's a good thing you know i think he was great that was a he surprise was great. like uh, bardem oh, yeah, is amazing can i just dwell for a minute on bardem for a second yeah. because he brings like people sometimes just bring who they are with them or like they, <laughs> they bring their character energy and bardem is so good on camera as a menacing figure, but you can't help but really find charming, right? Like yes. he's one of the great bad guys in No Country for Old Men, one of the more charismatic of all Bond villains in whichever Bond movie. Is that Spectre or Skyfall? I can never remember. I can't keep that. I think it's Skyfall. Straight. Skyfall. And here, he, I think the casting is is playing with our preconceived notion of Bardem is like, this is a bad guy that you want to like, so you're liking him, doesn't conform nor deny that he's a bad guy, probably in fact affirms it, but he has a turn, you know, a a little bit later, and it's not quite so simple as those things go, but I I agree. He was my favorite. Um, Whenever he was off screen, I wanted him on screen, which is always the way I test if I I like Mm. what the casting is is doing. Jen, how about you for casting thoughts? Well, I really... I I agree in theory about Bardem, that Mm -hmm. he's an amazing actor who does the thing he's been given to do very well. I cannot get over my discomfort with the way they cast the Fremen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot, there's been tons of discussion about how they did not cast any Middle Eastern or North African actors for speaking roles or hardly any roles at all in this movie, which is a huge oversight and issue given the influences, which they also downplayed in a way that I find very weird. Uh, And that a lot of other folks have written very intelligent things about that we will link to in the show notes. But, but like if you, cause they're basically kind of saying all Brown people are just Brown. Like, everybody's just brown, which is weird and incorrect and sort of, I don't know. I I can't get over that part of that casting. So I wish he had been cast as somebody else. Um, But I do agree that he's excellent. You know, we have Uh, these terms that makes me kind of just dwell on that for a minute. It makes me wonder about, you know, we have words for like first wave, second wave, third wave feminism. I feel like we have different waves of representation understanding. Sure. And this feels like a first wave representation yes. understanding across the board which is yes it's better than you could have it would have been in 92 or certainly 84 to take the real bad ex- example yeah, but it's right. not it doesn't represent the best of our current understanding of how to make these things you know useful and true and responsible um yeah so this yeah. i don't know if it's first or second wave represent probably second wave because first wave representation is nothing it's just white people all the way down this is ah we can do some gender bending we can do some race bending but let's actually think about like the actual political specificity of casting a particular people in a particular way. Um, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I, other, other highlights, lowlights for casting for you, Jen? 
I have to agree about Chalamet. I hated him as Paul. I, I was like, he's just a sullen teenager for the entire movie, which is part of what Paul is, but not all of what Paul is. Mm. And also, for, in order for us to care about him, I think you need more from that mm. character on the screen. And you just don't get it. Uh, I, will, I will say I was pleasantly surprised by Jason Momoa. When that yes. casting decision was announced, I was super not on board. I was like, that's... That's just a no from me. I love him, in, but in that role, I was like, no, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But I, he was way better than I was expecting him <laughs> to be as Duncan Idaho. Unpack and I, that, I, Jen. Why, why were you so nervous about Momoa? Well, he is not... Okay, in my defense, he plays Jason Momoa. Is that I you're had going? well that, but I also had just seen Aquaman, which uh, I am not a fan of. T- a very thought, tough hang, Aquaman. Oh, it was so rough, <laughs> yeah. and I was just like, oh man, like it, it, is he going to bring like? Are we getting Aquaman as Duncan Idaho? Like I'm super <laughs> not here for that. Show title. That's not what I want on my screen. But that's not what he did in his defense. So I like I I, I retract my objections. Uh, he was fine. He was fine. I think um, Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto was like exactly what he should have been yeah, in yeah. the in the minimalist uh, character development that everybody got. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I I was just really bummed that I didn't get to see more from you know like Chang Chen as Wellington Yue yeah. or from Zendaya as Chani or from um, oh who played Thufir Hawat uh, oh, oh yeah Stephen McKinley Henderson like there were so many interesting yeah. casting choices and I just didn't get to see them do anything which that's was a, a really good way of articulating something I couldn't quite articulate myself which I thought Chalamet was fine actually he gave me appreciation for Mark Hamill in Star Wars which I've never been <laughs> the biggest Mark Hamill fan but like Paul is 15 mm-hmm. yeah. in this movie. 15-year-olds are dummies. 15-year-olds have True. weird energy, and they and he's just standing around with bedroom eyes and, and a sallow demeanor. Like, I just didn't feel like there was much going on there. At least Hamill feels like a teenager. Like, I don't love his yeah. performance in Star Wars on the whole. It's fine. But, you know, Han and Leia are the best pieces there. Where Shalman is like, boy, I'm really not getting much except bedroom eyes looking into the distance and, like, having weird visions about Zendaya. I just yeah. didn't get too much. But I think something you just said made me think about my biggest feeling about the movie writ large is it radiates out from the casting is it feels like a missed opportunity because there's mm-hmm. so many places yeah. I wanted to spend more time. I wasn't waiting for the movie to be over. I was like, wait, 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 wait. stay here for a minute. Stay here for a right. minute. Stay here for a minute. And that suggests to me the casting was good. I do think the casting was Momoa's Duncan Idaho. I felt at first I was excited because like Momoa's fun, but you don't want a whole movie around him, which I think is the Aquaman problem. It's like right. he does a particular thing, but he's not the all the crayons in the box. But he brought a warmth and like humanity to yes. the movie. Mm-hmm. Like smiled, like yes. like hit yeah, someone no on the one, shoulder. Yes. And that you really need and like, oh, oh, more of that, more of that. And I was like, the only one I didn't like, and I put my notes here, I thought Brolin was a mistake. It didn't give me anything. Yeah. Gurney Halleck is this warrior, poet, musician kind of figure. Mm-hmm. He never and, sang. What? I'm sorry, say again? He didn't sing. Brolin didn't sing. Didn't sing. He get one little one little like Rebecca Ferguson or someone throws in the mic say, You probably have a scripture of that and he like says it under his breath while he's eating space yeah. porridge or yeah, whatever. Right. Exactly. Like, I just like I don't I I wanted something else. I don't know what I wanted there. I, my only other thought was I kinda was looking for like maybe a Vigo um in Lord of the Rings vibe, kind of the reluctant, mm. thoughtful mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Vigo sings in that, but he's also a yeah. warrior and has a different kind of vibe. Like, I don't know what direction Villeneuve gave Brolin, but he got like right. full metal jacket vibes out yeah. of him. Like, I, I, it didn't, it didn't do anything. I thought that was a really, that was really tough because you could have done so much more with that. But that was my only one that I was like, that really was uh, a mistake. You know, Isaac, pretty to look at, nice beard. Mm. <laughs> you know, good stuff out of Isaac. Um, playing upon his innate, our innate affection for Oscar Isaac, I think, here, because yes. he doesn't get to do much. So we need to care that he dies and he gets 45 minutes to care about him. So, like, okay, let's get someone people know already. Um, anything else there? Uh, okay, so we haven't talked about Is this a good adaptation? I think we're kind of on a, on a spectrum. Jen, did you enjoy this? I enjoyed the visuals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did not enjoy the movie, okay. if that makes sense. Sure. I yeah. felt like it really, I mean, I I said like minimalist earlier, which is a funny thing to say about a movie that was so dramatic. Um, but I do think the visuals were pretty stark and, and the, and certainly the character development was minimalist, but I felt like there were so many times when they tried to take these shortcuts in the place of actually developing anything like so, Amanda, you were saying earlier about, like, how the only reason we know that Baron Harkonnen is bad is because he's fat. Mm-hmm. And I was like, actually, the thing I kept thinking was that they could not have overdone Harkonnens are bad yeah. like, visually if uh. they had tried. Like, they got the darkest lighting. Everything yeah. was black in the background. There was no sun ever anywhere the Harkonnens were. They all, they wore all black. Baron Harkonnen emerges from a pool of, like, who knows what oil? Yeah. Like oily, man, like, man grease. Yeah. Like what is that? I don't even. What know is that? that and stuff. he like he just. I mean, it's so like even like even like you could have removed the fat suit. You should have removed the fat mm-hmm. suit, mm-hmm. and like you would have been. He w- He's like Doctor Evil. He's <laughs> the he's the Dune version of Doctor Evil. Like n- none of them actually ha- talk in a normal tone of voice ever. They're either like creepily whispering or screaming. Like it's just so so over the top like i'm like i get it they're bad you want us to think they're bad okay they're bad i got it like move it along um well i think amanda's point maybe wasn't necessarily about like visuals but in terms of plot like what have they actually done that's bad but yeah right yeah yeah not to speak for you amanda is that right but it wasn't so much mm -hmm. that i mean we knew they were bad but like why exactly are they right exactly and like I think that 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 is just one example of all of these ways that the film like they were trying so hard to hit all of these plot points mm-hmm. that they completely lost the the motivations and the why and the how. So it's just like plot point plot plot point. We don't know why we're there. We don't know how we got here. We don't know why we care. But here we are. Like that that was my overwhelming feeling after watching the movie. Amanda, your note is so exclamation point pretty <laughs> exclamation point two exclamation point look at. Yes. Um, is there anything more to say about that, those that that sequential declarative or or how does that connect with Jen said about how it looks in the visuals? Um, I think that they are making a stunning visual, like, not monstrosity. What's a good word for monstrosity? <laughs> well, no, I mean, if we use, like, the architectural term, it's a brutalist movie. It's yeah. a beautiful, yeah. I mean, brutalist movie. The movie. buildings are all brutal. Yes. yes. Yeah. It's so pretty to look at. I think if I had muted it, I would have gotten the same out yes. of it in the, in the yes. end. I would have known who was good oh, and who was bad, like Jen right. was saying. I would have known the plot That's points because I would have seen point, the worm. Amanda. I love that point because it does feel like 
moving concept art, like a Doug Chang yes. moving concept art book for Star Wars or something else. Yeah, I mean, I loved looking at it. I enjoyed watching it. Uh, I think it's a um, it's an interesting sci-fi movie. It's uh, just a terrible character. Like the, they're not given any. The characters aren't given anything to do, so yeah. everyone is set dressing. Yeah, and I think you know it just like it violates the first precept of storytelling, which is show don't tell. You're told nothing. You're shown everything except the stuff that you need to be shown, which are like details. Uh, right. They mm. shoved so much into two hours and twenty minutes that you end up. It ends up without any heart. Like it, there's just yes. no. You know, like Duncan Idaho has a heart. Mm-hmm. Keens has a heart. Yeah. The stakes for everyone else, I kind of don't care about. I don't care what yeah. happens to the Harkonnens because I don't know what right. they did that's wrong. Like the the thing that we're told the Harkonnens do that are bad is colonize a planet. And then the Atreides go and colonize the planet. Right. So like, how am I supposed to? Well, I don't care about these people. I care that you know a, 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 a concubine and a husband and a son are go- are going to die. Maybe like that's bad because people dying is bad. But I don't have any particular affection for right. anyone in this movie except the two characters who bring warmth because of their acting, not because yeah. of their. Mm-hmm. Script. So or yeah. they were Watch allowed to do that, right? I mean, I'm sure if if Villeneuve had given Isaac like go broader he would have that's clearly a choice on the director's part of like who has to stand there looking regal and who gets to like come out of the helicopter and whip their helmet off and be like boy that was quite a trip wasn't it boys like all that kind of that kind of vibe the only screen time you're given you have to portray as much dignity as possible in order to be a foil to the person who portrays as much evil as possible with the screen time standing there rigidly looking noble is like all you can possibly do yeah i i I would just echo everything you both have said I, i i even found myself being mad at some of the lingering beautiful shots shots of spaceships landing because mm-hmm. i'm like i'm i'm missing plot because we need yeah. to look at how cool the ship coming over the horizon right. into this docking bay is and, and no, make no mistake there there's one shot and i don't even know what it is I, I don't think it's in the book but when like spaceships arrive in arrakis there's like this giant huge Sonos speaker looking thing that then the little <laughs> ships come out of. And I was like, I don't know what that is. It's beautiful, but I have right. no, is that the thing they used to travel interstellarly? Like, I think that was the guild ship. Yeah. The guild yeah. ship. But like, I don't know what is going on there at all. <laughs> um, and that there is such richness in the book, but you got to spend more time. You just, yeah. time is the enemy here. Um, and the things they chose to spend time on, even with their limited pieces, we're frustrating um, as someone who who likes the book, and I think the people, the very few people I've talked to have seen it, are having a very similar reaction. I think what they don't have is the underlying piece of what's missing, because mm-hmm. they're like, it was beautiful and a cool hang and, and, and a visual cinematic experience, unlike something you're going to have in a movie theater. It's so different, say, than Marvel movies, right. which have a right. completely different vibe, and rightly or wrongly, now I've seen 24 movies of that vibe, so I'm kind of good with the Marvel MCU vibe, you know, of, of the jokey seriousness, um, bro- broing down, even if you're a lady kind of stuff, um, that this was a curveball, but mm. it could have been better. It just it mm-hmm. just could have been better. And it wasn't bad enough to be a disaster, to leave no. meat on the bone for someone else, almost, which right. almost would be better, um, like the Lynchian thing. But before we bury, well, I don't think we're burying it necessarily, but let's talk, mm. is there anything that the movie does extremely well or even better than the book outside of, of visuals or like Villeneuve's clear commitment to making the MoMA of science fiction movies? Better than the book? No. <laughs> or brings that's new. I mean, it does have to do better, but like, what, does it bring anything new or different to the table than you were expecting or, Actually, or found in the book? 
the Jessica's Rebecca Ferguson's portrayal of Jessica brought a lot more emotion. Uh. She had almost no lines, bless her, but she brought a lot more, you know, um, I think physical physicality, like physical expressions of emotion than you get from Jessica in the book. Mm. You get a lot of like, I don't know, like a Republican operative man writing a loving mother is like kind of a weird, (laughs) it's like a weird flex anyway. Um, But Jessica, I think you can tell, is a character written by a man, like written by a straight dude. In in Dune? In Dune or both? In Dune. No, in the book. In the book. book. Um, Pardon me. And then when she comes onto the screen and like, you know, the opening scene when he's being tested by the Reverend Mother and she's just trying to not break down. Yeah. And she she says nothing except the fear is the mind killer prayer. Mm -hmm. And in the book, she also says nothing. She just stands there and is worried. I don't remember if she prays or not. But seeing her like buckle over and like hold her hands really tightly, all of that. I think that there was a new dimension to that character as a as a parent um, that is, is lacking in the book that I didn't realize was lacking until I saw a human woman do it. No, you're totally right. right. The portrayal that Ferguson gives is much more, like it's costing Jessica to do this stuff. This Where in the right, book, yeah. she's just sort of seeming like she's a maybe herself a pawn, a pawn within a pawn of the larger mm-hmm. game, and kind of seems re- maybe not excited to let Paul be sacrificed to the Gamjabar, mm-hmm. but at the very least sort of neutral. But you're right, yeah. She has to hold herself together, I guess, for lack of yeah, a better and term. Yeah, and when she tries to adept. get him off planet, when, you know, when, they, yeah. when they finally right. meet the Fremen, and she's like, you know smugglers, you have to get him off. Um, she doesn't say that in the book. In the book, she's like, well, we're here. Like, this is part of the path that we have put mm-hmm. ourselves on. But she breaks right. away to try to save him. And that moment is completely passed over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jen, it sounds like you had some audiovisual stuff uh, in, in watching this. Do you want to dwell on that for a minute? Uh, you mean issues or? Well, I just said uh, my note here is that I don't think it adds in terms of if you were to describe on paper what's in the movie and what's on the book, they're the same thing in terms of sandworms and dunes and sunsets. But like just seeing it on the screen is different. A giant sandworm that's like nine billion feet tall on oh, a film yeah. is just way different than like, and there's a 400 meter sandworm. I'm like, right. okay, meters to feet. And what would that look like <laughs> in, my, in my head? But on the screen, you're like, I don't have to do any of that math. But you had a note here that you had a hard time even seeing that. Yeah. So I don't know if this is part of... I mean, I I have talked to a bunch of other people about what it was like to watch this movie at this point, and I literally don't know anyone who has seen it inside of a theater. I only know Mm. people who have seen it at home on varying size screens that would fit in your house. Okay. So, and like no nobody I know has an in-home theater. Let's Mm -hmm. let's that that I have talked to about this movie. So, I saw it at a drive-in. Now, I. I'm willing to believe that there are just certain fundamental issues of lighting that happen when you yeah. put a movie on the side of a cargo container out <laughs> in a parking lot. Like, I'm be- I believe right. that that's true. But everybody I've talked to has said, yes, the movie was very dimly lit. The problem with seeing it at the drive-in was that it was so dim in certain scenes that that moment of reveal where Paul and Jessica are confronted with the sandworm, it was just a wash of gray. We literally Mm. couldn't see. I couldn't see it either. Is that right? Okay. That's super interesting. So, yeah. So yeah, I I was like, I just I, I it's supposed to be this moment, but I can't see what I'm looking at, and that happens so many times. And then audio, yeah, like you know, I there's this moment where, you know, Leto has been captured, and Doctor Yue has put in the tooth, and he's you know luring Baron Harkonnen closer to him so that he can say these words to him and then bite down. I yeah. could not tell what the hell he said. Mm-hmm. I could not hear it. And the score, the music score was so overwhelming in certain mm-hmm. moments. Like, I can't tell what anybody's saying. So I don't know how much of that was. 
I mean, it just it seems to me that that's a real bummer. And it's not the first time we've seen that, like memorably, the final episode or what yes. there was one Game of Thrones episode, right? That night. was so dark. Nobody could see it. Yeah, yeah the battle. And like this seems to be happening on the regular. And I'm like, do they not car test? Like in music, you call it a car test, right? Mm. Like it sounds great in the studio. Now you put it on a cassette or a CD or whatever, and you play it in your car on the crappy car speakers. What does it sound like? Do they not car test movies? Like what? It's a great question. Especially if they're releasing it to streaming. Exactly. In the age of streaming? Like, come on now. So I I was very frustrated because I I wanted to have these transcendent moments of like, I'm finally seeing the thing, but I couldn't see it. Yeah, my own viewing experience maybe is is the exception that proves the rule in terms of I saw it at home, but my one indulgence is I have an, a 75-inch OLED screen, so it's the, the, oh. the, the, the million-to-one contrast ratio. So no better thing to watch something that's dark on. And I could see it, but I did have a thought of, I wonder what it looks like in a movie theater, because actually a movie theater doesn't have as good contrast ratio as mm. an OLED, right? Because you, you have to, it's backlit projection, so there's light coming through and whatever. Right. That's a real disappointment because mm. it is... My own experience was I'm not sure I've ever seen a prettier movie. And Michelle said the same thing. I'm not sure I've ever seen the, the prettier thing. She also said the same thing. I think this is your note here, Jen, when you're talking about some of the things that don't go well. It's like, why do I care about these people? Or maybe it was Amanda. Right. Like, literally, why do I care about these people? Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't understand what's happening enough to care. And if, sometimes you don't need to understand plot to care right. about relationships, right? right. But right. then you need to have the relationships that is the connective tissue between it. But we just really uh, don't get that. I, the thing that struck me is I didn't have highlights and lowlights. I didn't have this was sequence was awesome. Um, even the big sandworm that I did get to see because I'm, I'm, uh, that's where I spend money that's discretionary income, I was like, mm-hmm. it was kind of what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. That, I'm, almost in, I'm almost inured to amazing special effects at this point. Like, after Endgame and some of the stuff I've seen in Star Wars, I'm like, Okay, people can show me anything now. Right. So a giant sandworm doesn't have the same... Sh- it's not, you know, it doesn't get to be the Jaws, uh, the shark and Jaws, even in mm. 1974. It just doesn't have a sense of how do they do that. It's like, you know, I know how they do that. They sit around and there's a bunch of people in Thailand at computers that they underpay to render this stuff. Mm. And that's how you do it. So I, I found myself pretty much overwhelmed by that. And no, nor did I really see lowlights. I mean, Josh Brolin screaming at Paul in their first training session. I'm like, okay, right. I don't like that vibe. But like quotable lines memorable sequences like i just it's it's so polished that i'm like <laughs> i don't know i feel kind of inured to the beauty of it i just don't feel it. it's beautiful but i don't feel anything for it but amanda mm. follow up on that you do have a you had a real low light. oh yeah i had a ridiculous reaction to the shot of the sardacor on their planet when oh. the Harkonnen Mentat goes to like recruit the troops or whatever. Yep. And for some reason, the general or the leader of the Sardaukor is speaking to them via mouth harp. Yep. Like, what oh, was that sound yeah. he was making? He was doing it like, burr, 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 burr. and I don't know what it was supposed to sound like, but all I could think about was like cartoons from my childhood of hillbillies with mouth harps. This is not <laughs> what I'm supposed to be thinking. And then I couldn't stop laughing, which is not the reaction there. But, like, you're not supposed to be laughing in that moment. These are supposed to be terrifying people. They're like bodies on a weird kind of Aztecian pyramid yeah. out from the night. Like it's a, supposed to be this really dramatic moment, but it, they were so invested in kind of weird, quirky sound Right, I, it totally pulled me out, and I laughed hysterically. See, also bagpipes. <laughs> Why were there bagpipes? Yes, Can we talk bag about pipes. that for a minute? Because I don't. Re- there were no bagpipes in the book, right? I didn't no, think so. It's Ten thousand years in the future, we have better instruments. <laughs> also, not the instrument you want on a sand planet. I wouldn't no. guess. Just a thought. I felt like it was just a way to code them as white. 
And then I and got yeah. mad. Yeah, that was my theory too. But in my other note in that same, or my other drop in that same bucket is like the bullfighting imagery. Was that in the book? Well, that's in the yes, book. Oh, is. that is in the book. Yeah, it okay. is in the okay. book. Okay. We understand Leto to be of Spanish descent. I remember there being this moment of Lady Whoa. Jessica being like, oh, I hate this portrait of your dad so much. And there's this giant bullhead over my dinner table and oh, I just hate it. But I like Leto is super attached yeah. to it. So, yeah. Yeah, that was weird. I guess that makes sense because their home plan is like Caledon, which is like a, a barely skinned version of Catalan or something like that. Maybe you yeah. know, knowing it's Herbert, like a mashup he likes to do between stuff like that. Right, Catalan and um, Scottish like stuff, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a, I had. If you could keep one element, what would it be? I think we've kind of all said the same thing. The visuals are striking. Um, I'm not yeah. sure if there's anything else there. If you could change one thing, what it would be? Gender was like <laughs> actual character development, which yeah. is like the the biggest shade blow you can throw at a movie <laughs> like this. So, which is so, so hard. this is this is something I wanted to bring up because I actually. After I, so I talked to Devin, our colleague ah. uh, who works in AdOps, about this because he told me that Denis Villeneuve is his favorite director. He mm. loves Villeneuve. Mm-hmm. He he was so excited to see Dune, and I was like, Devin, what do you know about Dune? And he said, Oh well, I've seen you know the 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 David Lynch one, <laughs> and like I I know the story, but I've never read it. But I was like so excited about Villeneuve, and I was like, Well, what did you think? And he said, Well, it was amazing. It was beautiful. You know, he said all the things everybody's saying. He's like, But you know, it left me cold, and that's yeah. something that's always true for me for Villeneuve. Like I yes. and it made me think. I'm like, Oh, that's a that might be like not necessarily a miss, but an active choice. Like maybe feature not a book. Is it possible that he just doesn't care about character? Like that that what he's in it for is the plot and the visuals, and this is a very deliberate choice on his part. I think it's entirely possible. You know, it's almost like the move towards non-representational painting, right? Like, I just want you mm. to feel something when you look at this Rothko color field. I don't care. Right. You, I don't care that you're looking at actual people doing things in the real world. If it is, it's a weird choice then for something that's so complicated yeah. about character and everything. I, I don't know what you pick if you just want to have sort of a blank canvas to play with sci-fi visuals or any kind of visuals. I guess sci-fi is useful to him because it liberates him from the necessity of things being practicable in the world as yeah. we understand. It's like, we, we don't care if a ship is shaped like that because why would it matter? Right. My note about that is kind of weird. It's similar, which is, there is some logic sacrificed for beauty, and th- you're going to laugh at me. I think when I when the thing that bothered me the most that, that I really attached uh, my barnacle of, of care that attached the whale <laughs> was why is no one wearing sunglasses? <laughs> <laughs> you, it, they have bagpipes, but not sunglasses in the future. I mean, I mean, they they've got still suits, but they can't give a brother a Ray Bans when they're walking <laughs> around out on the sun planet, and that's so that you can look at them because because they're beautiful people. Right. It, oh. it, 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 it resists all logic, but you want to look at the blue eyes and you want to look at Sha- Shalomai's distinguishing feature as his bedroom eyes. You throw some Oakleys on that dude and he, you know, he's just another high he's schooler with good boy. cheekbones. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, that's the place where I really got stuck on. It's like, and then I was looking at the ships and I'm like, mm-hmm. how do these things work exactly? Right. There, there's no discernible. They just look like whales or sand crawlers. There's no right. discernible reason. When they land, like just sort of they magically transform into something useful. And just the smoothness (laughs) of all the operation. You know, one of the things that people say, and I agree with them about one of the reasons people are drawn oftentimes, especially in earlier versions to the Star Wars universe, is it feels lived in. It feels like there's scuff marks on stuff and people are dirty and the people are eating and they, you know, all the stuff that goes into it. Villeneuve doesn't really 
want the world to feel lived in. He wants it to feel pristine mm. and polished. Mm. And I, I agree with you, Jen. I think maybe he made the film he wants to make. I don't, right. I don't know that he looks mm. at it and he's like, boy, I wish I would have gotten more about the Mentats in there. I'm not sure that's the yeah, vibe he's, no. he's really going for. In terms of now to his subsequent, it seems like it made an, they clearly made enough movie to want to proceed with it. Because it was also on HBO Max, it's a little hard to know, but even the box office did pretty well. Maybe we should end on this note is like, is the future, to, now forget our own personal feelings about it, just for a minute. Do you feel like Dune is going to be a thing that's in the culture for a while? Like we're, we're going to, it's going to be, you know, we now have a Dune in our life. Because that's not what happened with the Lynch movie. It failed and it went away and it became only thing that Jen's nerds had to pass a sci-fi test to have read. Does it have a chance of being like a Lord of the Rings situation where you don't now need to have read the books to have a Lord of the Rings vibe, to, to be a fan of Lord of the Rings, which is kind of the ultimate test for these properties? What, what's your take, Amanda? Do you want to try try to crack at that? Um, I think you still do need to read Dune to be in like an, a, any kind of real Dune fandom because you can't have a conversation about it without because you didn't get uh, any information from the movie. Right. Um, so I do think that it's going to be around if only because the studios are going to force it upon us. Like we'll get part two. Mm-hmm. And I, I say force it. I will watch part two. I'm like interested to see what they do. And it's pretty. Um, and mm-hmm. if part two does well, then they'll keep going just like they did with Lord of the Rings. Will it be as profitable or as culturally um, like foundational to people as Lord of the Rings is? I don't think so. But mm-hmm. I think that has more to do with Lord of the Rings being like how people connect with their subconscious desire to want whiteness to be a culture more than it does with the quality mm. of Lord of the Rings. Oh, body like blows at the end of the episode. Yeah. Here, man. <laughs> that's like a whole other rant. Yeah. If you're like yeah. super, super into Lord of the Rings and you're white, you might want to examine that. Please be careful. Yes, please yeah. be careful with that. Yeah. Um, and so I think because it doesn't have a... Because he doesn't do it. Like, it doesn't have the, the Mena actors. It doesn't have as much of the Islamic influence. He took it all out. There's, like, nowhere to sink a cultural connection in right. Dune. Like, you can't attach anywhere to it. You don't care about the people. You don't care about the culture. So, I don't know. I think it'll be a big blockbuster trilogy. Maybe it'll be, like, Ghostbusters. Like, it's a thing people watch because it's fun. And then, do we care about That's it in 20 years? It. Maybe not. Yeah, you know, you just said something that made me think about, like, say say two people who haven't read the books get together and they've both seen Dune and they want to talk about. Like, what are they saying to each other about it? Like, what it's are you pretty. talking about? Did you That's see it. that sandworm? That's what yeah, they're saying. Right. Yeah. They're not like, wasn't that guy funny or wasn't she no. awesome when she kicked ass or any of those kinds of things. It's, it is very aesthetic experience. Jen, how about, what's your sense of, our few, are we going to be really excited to do an adaptation nation about Dune in October of 2023? <laughs> I mean, I... I want to believe that we'll get more character development in part two because of what the plot of part two well, that's has a great point. to be. Mm-hmm. I hope like, so. I don't know how you do it without actually digging in at least a little bit to these characters. So it's possible that I will be happier at the end of that viewing experience, but I kind of don't. No, for sure. I mean, I will say, like, Villeneuve adapted Arrival, which is based on Ted Chang. Which you like, right? I remember Story this. of Your Life and Others. I, I think they made some weird-ass choices <laughs> about changing the ending of that. The way that they did, like, this... I, I don't even... We, I, I talked about that on another podcast. Right, right, right. But, like, I have some feelings about some of the changes that they made. But that you had to do the character development there, and he did. So I know he's capable of it. Mm-hmm. It's just, does he want to, and will he, are the big questions. He prefers not to. 
big he prefers one. not to <laughs> yes well yeah. in arrival it's harder to get distracted by giant sandworm vistas I, in, in fairness like where are you going to go with arrival well maybe, right it's I mean, so contained yeah. setting wise it's right. all the whole thing takes place in a room right. i mean yeah. that's just true you don't have a so. huge beautiful desert planet to have lingering right. um right. shots over at the end yeah and i mean no spoilers except for really but not only do you have to dig in but this is the most normal, quote unquote, of all the Dune experiences you're going to have in terms of where the plot goes. Like, right. welcome to Aaliyah's birth or conception yeah. or whatever that is, yeah. which have fun with that. I, I just <laughs> don't really know how that's uh-huh. going to go, but I'm also. I mean, it, uh, you'll get not an a epic filmmaker. space battle. Yeah, we will get an epic space battle. Yeah. And I, sand battles. We already saw. We, we already saw some desert, of the sand battles. Desert power. We have to say desert. <laughs> Actually, that was a little bit of a hammy. It's a hammy line in the book, even. For oh, it to talk is. about desert power. It's pretty tough. Well, I think that's all I have for you. My, my, my parting thought was, I'm glad it exists in the world. I, I definitely looked forward to it. And while I was watching it, I enjoyed watching it. It almost made me feel like I was drinking a Diet Coke, though. It's like... Mm. Like it's it's enough like a Coke that I'm not mad at it, but you know I it's not a real it's not a real Coke, which is maybe the most disappointing thing because if it's an abject failure, then there is no part two done, and it doesn't become someone else gets to do it. I mean, one of the right. one of the bummer things about the Lord of the Rings adaptations being so popular is that who's going to remake it? Right. Who's going to get another crack at, at this? And it becomes now the canonical version, which doesn't need to be necessarily. And I, this is too. This is now going to have so much cultural weight that it's, it's, it's a big story and you're going to do it differently. But I agree with you, Jen. I, I found myself desperately wanting it to be an eight-episode series, season yeah. one for book one, um, mm. and, and really flip it around because I think it could have worked um, really well. But you know what I enjoyed? I enjoyed this part. This part was super yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So I guess we're off show notes um, that will be available in your podcast catcher of toy- choice. The okay. show notes will be in the episode notes in your podcatcher of choice. So uh, we'll, we'll take care of that there. Jen and Amanda, thank you so much for going on this journey with me. We started out with a really, really, really juicy topic. It's, it's hard <laughs> to know where to go from here for talk about adaptations, but we've got some ideas. Thanks so much. <laughs>